I have the pleasure to host Nicholas Danforth in our latest podcast to talk about Turkey, a very difficult neighbor to Greece. Uh, Mr. Danforth, I want to begin our discussion by asking you what are Erdogan's ambitions at this point? He has alienated all his Western allies and does he really believe that he can revive the Ottoman Empire? So we're starting right off with the hard questions here. Uh, I would say, first of all, Erdogan's main ambition is to stay in power. Uh, second to that, his ambition for the country, it's not to revive the Ottoman Empire per se. I don't even know what necessarily that would mean in the 21st century, but it's to make Turkey a great power. I think to the extent there's one thing that's been consistent, and again, I emphasize that I think his domestic political goals are first and foremost in his uh, mind right now. But to the extent there's been one animating foreign policy vision, uh, it, it has been a sense of greatness. I mean, Erdogan obviously rhetorically uh, loves the Ottoman Empire, talks about the Ottoman Empire every chance he gets, uh, everything he does, uh, even mutually contradictory things he does are all wrapped in this Ottoman historic mantle. Uh, but when you look at some of the concrete things that Erdogan does, I think it's a much more conventional sense of what uh, what being a great power entails. Um, you know, ironically, some of it, it almost seems more like he's kind of stuck in the late 20th century. You know, he wants Turkey to be a member of the UN Security Council. Uh, now he wants Turkey to put a man on the moon. Uh, you know, it kind of almost seems like a late Cold War vision of what being a great power is. Well, has Erdogan changed at some point? Because when we remember him uh, in the first years of his premiership in Turkey, he, he was a different man, a different politician. Or was it just the image that he wanted to, uh, to show to the people? And in fact, he didn't change. He was always like that. No, that's another question that, right, as I mean, we've been arguing about for uh, a decade now, it seems like. I mean, I would say there are obviously consistencies. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the Erdogan sense, his faith in himself, the people he's angry at, his desire to transform Turkey, uh, his desire for power, these have been very consistent. Uh, but I think the circumstances in which these have manifested itself have been very different. Um, you know, I, people obviously were much more optimistic 15 years ago when Erdogan and the AKP first came to power uh, about the positive role they could play, the um, liberal transformation, the democratic transformation they should usher in. Uh, a lot of that was certainly naivete about Erdogan, uh, but when you go back and look at what people said 10 or 15 years ago, you also see as people realized who Erdogan was even back then, and a lot of the optimism was actually about the other forces that were going to constrain Erdogan, the other members of his party, the other institutions in Turkey, uh, that were going to force him to channel his ambition uh, and his desire for power into, uh, into a very different form than they've taken now. Um, and so, you know, I think, unfortunately, what you see is not just Erdogan continuing to be Erdogan, uh, but Erdogan having the opportunity to be you know, the worst, most authoritarian version of himself, uh, and also to do so in a situation where I feel like uh, he genuinely believes he's been betrayed by 
uh, many of the more liberal, more pro-Western figures he worked with in the past. You know, I think that's what's most frightening right now. Erdogan is in an alliance with these um, right-wing nationalist forces in Turkey. Uh, some people say it's a marriage of convenience. At some level it is. But I also worry there's a much deeper mind meld uh, between Erdogan and the, uh, the Turkish nationalists he's in bed with now. Um, you know, I think, look, at various points, Erdogan tried to work with the U.S. He worked with the Gülen movement. Uh, he tried to negotiate with the Kurds. I think he now feels like he was betrayed in all of these efforts. The people who told him to do this, uh, to work with these actors, betrayed him. Uh, and now, as a result, you know, he was always suspicious of the West. Now he's had those suspicions confirmed, and he has the power to act on the much more hostile and suspicious viewpoint he's developed. So it really is, you know, it's the worst case scenario. Well, uh, how do you believe that the West must react towards Erdogan? We see that the, the European Union uh, sometimes talks um, about sanctions and then, and then not. And uh, the United States, now they have a new president, they have Joe Biden, so things will change uh, towards Turkey. Uh, what do you think that the West must do now? And at the end of the day, um, can the West afford to lose Turkey? And one of the things I've tried to be consistent about saying, you know, especially in Washington, and I think also uh, to some extent in Europe, you've had this running debate about how to deal with Turkey. Uh, and some people have been advocating carrots, other people sticks. Some people say we should try to engage Turkey, we should understand their concerns. Other people say, look, we have to get tough with Turkey, we have to use sanctions to stand up to Erdogan. Uh, and the first point I always want to make is that none of these approaches are going to be great. Uh, we're never... You know, we're not going to get the old turkey back through either carrots or sticks. Uh, that said, you know, I think the best strategy is one that is consistent, uh, both in the case of the EU and the Trump administration. I do think you saw the worst possible combination. Uh, you saw a lot of threats of sanctions, you know, whether it was over the Eastern Med stuff in Europe, whether it was over the S-400 Russian missiles in the United States. You saw a lot of threats uh, that were not followed through on. And I think this had the, you know, it achieved the worst of both worlds. It convinced Turkey that the West was fundamentally hostile to it, uh, but also that the West was kind of weak and ineffectual and needed Turkey too much to follow through on any of these threats. Um, you know, so again, I don't think that either the U.S. or the EU should go overboard, you know, and try to destroy the Turkish economy. Um, you know, I think that's... Neither the U.S. or the EU wants to do that. They both realize there would be negative repercussions. Uh, but I also don't think we should have any illusions. I don't think we should think there's going to be a reset, uh, that we're going to restore the old alliance by being nicer to Erdogan, by trying to accommodate him. You know, I think what you've seen, you know, very slowly in the EU case over some of the East Med sanctions, uh, now maybe a little more quickly in the U.S. case over the S-400s, you know, is what I hope will be an effective policy of you know, clearly threatening uh, practical, you know, sanctions and measures in response for Turkish provocations, um, not, but also giving Turkey a way to, you know, step back if it needs to, not relaxing the pressure every time it says it's going to step back, but, you know, if it wants to engage in negotiations, even if those negotiations aren't going to go anywhere, you know, have the negotiations uh, and realize that, you know, Turkey is going to keep doing provocative things. Uh, 
the U.S. and the EU have to respond, have to put pressure on it in return. Uh, and we should resign ourselves to the fact that this is going to be a long, frustrating process and that, you know, threatening these measures consistently, uh, not overreacting, but being consistent and then following through with the, you know, things that we say we're going to do is the best we can hope for. Do you see Erdogan, do you see Turkey abandoning S-400 plans now that Joe Biden is in the White House? I mean, yes, yeah, so there are some people are more optimistic than I am about this. Um, so far, every time there's been a proposal or a suggestion to resolve the S-400 issue, it seems like it boils down to the United States' suggestion is that Turkey get rid of the S-400s and the U.S. doesn't sanction it. And Turkey's response is always some version of, well, how about we keep the S-400s and you don't sanction us? Um, and, you know, over the past, for most of the past year, it did seem like there was an implicit agreement worked out where Turkey would keep the S-400s in storage. Uh, the U.S. would delay imposing CATSA sanctions. Uh, after that, when Turkey thought the opportunity was ripe, it went ahead and very ostentatiously tested the S-400s. The U.S. did impose sanctions. Uh, despite the positive suggestions that are coming out now, despite a lot of the optimistic rhetoric, I think building on this, it's going to be, you know, there's just, there's very little trust. Uh, Turkey, obviously, if only for kind of prestige reasons, is hesitant to essentially admit that it's not going to use this major missile system it bought. Um, you know, in the abstract, a compromise is possible, but I'm not holding my breath. Well, um, we see now that people are getting frustrated in, in Turkey. We see that even the price of the bread has gone up. Uh, is Erdogan really under pressure at home? And if he is, what, how will he react? What will he do? Because usually he has a reaction on when he's at home uh, under a lot of pressure, when the economy uh, it does not go well. Right, and that's what makes this so difficult to predict. I mean, the pressure on Erdogan has been increasing for years now. Uh, the, his poll numbers have been getting steadily worse. They continue to get worse, you know, as you mentioned, because of the economic situation, uh, because the real suffering that people are enduring. Uh, and, you know, everyone predicts, all right, at some point in the next election, it's going to be impossible for Erdogan to keep doing what he's done very well, which is continue to win real, if not fair, elections in a way that maintains a veneer of legitimacy. You know, and again, no one's saying these are free and fair elections, that, you know, opposition politicians have been arrested, the media is heavily controlled by Erdogan, there have been allegations that the votes aren't counted fairly, you know, but one way or another, Erdogan has managed to win by manipulating the political system in a way that at least, you know, again, maintains a veneer, keeps the level of political of fraud, you know, below anything ostentatious, below anything verifiable. And people keep assuming that at some point this game is going to run out. And it's not, you know, Erdogan doesn't have to have elections till 2023. There's a lot he can do in the meantime. Um, you've seen him playing around with the opposition. He's been very effective at using the Kurdish question. And as you suggest, other foreign uh, conflicts to maintain a degree of support for himself to split his opponents. So even at the point where most of the country is against him, they can't agree what they're for. Uh, most recently, you know, you see he, as the conflict with the Kurds continues, he increasingly has used that to divide the opposition between people who are 
uh, basically willing to work with Turkey's Kurdish party uh, in opposition to Erdogan and people who basically see the Kurdish party as more of a threat than Erdogan. Um, you know, between the levers um, uh, that Erdogan has at his disposal to stay in power undemocratically uh, and the undemocratic means and the kind of nationalist tricks that he has to use to shape the political playing field, you know, he's, he's clearly under a lot of pressure. Uh, I don't know how he's going to deal with it, but he has a record of doing so successfully in the past. Well, Mr. Danforth, um, Turkey and Egypt, Turkey and Israel, why did the relationships between Turkey and these two countries have gone so sore in the last years? Uh, and uh, let me recommend there was a very good LEMF report that we just put out on the subject of Turkey and Egypt, which I would recommend to listeners. Uh, it's really, it is interesting how a combination of very long-standing Turkish foreign policy concerns, uh, which I, people in Greece are obviously very well aware of, uh, and some of the new, more ideological issues that Erdogan has brought to the fore, uh, have come together so dramatically in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, you know, obviously in Turkey's confrontation with Greece, this is a subject that, you know, virtually everyone in Turkey, even some of the most pro-Western people um, I've spoken to, you know, basically on Erdogan's side. Um, you know, Israel too, no one in Turkey particularly likes Israel, but the way uh, Erdogan's gone about it, you know, the specific emphasis he's put on working with Islamist actors uh, like Hamas and Israel, uh, his particular enthusiasm for uh, promoting for Turkish sponsorship of pro-Palestinian activities uh, in East Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount. You know, this has given a particular Islamist flavor to Erdogan's confrontation with Israel. When you combine it with some of the, you know, uh, Erdogan's efforts to help Iran violate uh, US sanctions, you know, this has created a real Israeli concern um, about uh, about Turkish foreign policy. Likewise, in Egypt, you know, this is almost purely a, a result of Erdogan's worldview and his domestic politics. And you know, he was very supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood when Sisi toppled the Muslim Brotherhood in a, you know, obviously brutal and undemocratic fashion. Erdogan took that very personally. Uh, he's been very outspoken on behalf of the Brotherhood. You know, he's repeatedly denounced Sisi as a dictator, which, you know, is fair enough. Um, but in the result, obviously, is what you now see in the Eastern Med, with the East Med Gas Forum, with the situation in Libya, where Erdogan's managed to bring together a remarkable array of actors in opposition to Turkey. Well, I want to, uh, now to discuss a little bit about the Greece, about Greece and Turkey, and about Cyprus. Do you believe that the Turkish president wants a two-state solution now in Cyprus? I mean, listening to Turkey's rhetoric on Cyprus now, it's also hard to be optimistic about any of the negotiations that might take place. Uh, Erdogan has, as you said, you know, announced his desire for a two-state solution. Uh, he seemed to walk that back a little bit when there was talk of having negotiations. Then he voiced it again. Uh, in all honesty, I don't know what that two-state solution actually means. If it means that you know, instead of only Turkey recognizing Northern Cyprus, you'd also have Azerbaijan and maybe half of Libya recognizing Northern Cyprus. I mean, in practical terms, I, you know, technically Turkey already claims there's been a two-state solution to 
Cyprus. So, you know, but no, obviously this rhetoric as well as statements that are being made about how uh, they don't think a bizonal federation would be achievable or realistic anymore. You know, it, it fits with the pattern of Turkey seemingly using negotiations as a way to buy time or as a way to reduce uh, foreign pressure on foreign pressure on the Turkish government rather than to really find a solution. Um, you know, and I think, look, I think this is the example of the diplomatic price Turkey has paid for a lot of Erdogan's provocation. There was enormous sympathy for Turkey and especially the Northern Cypriots uh, in, the, in Europe, in the international community after the failure of the Anand plan. Um, you know, certainly looking from Washington, a lot of people thought that the Turkey and the Turkish Cypriots had behaved responsibly and had gotten a raw deal as a result of how that played out. Um, you know, but obviously the way Turkey has handled the issue since then, it makes it very hard for, you know, it's destroyed all that sympathy and uh, certainly left no opportunity for Turkey to capitalize on that sympathy if there ever was one. Well, there was also Grand Montana and a lot has been said about that and whose fault it was that these negotiations also uh, did not go well. Well, now for Greece and Turkey, they have begun the difficult exploratory talks. Um, do you believe that Turkey would agree to refer the difference over the continental shelf uh, in the Aegean to Hague, to the International Court in the Hague? Is there any chance that they would accept something like that? I mean, again, when you look at Erdogan's rhetoric, and if, you know, if you take it at face value, that it's so consistently hostile towards you know international organizations to you know, he so repeatedly emphasizes that the international community is hostile to Turkey, that the West is unfair to Turkey. Um, it's, you know, given that rhetoric and given the way Turkey has tried to structure the negotiations, um, it's, it's very difficult for me to imagine a scenario in which Turkey agreed to refer this to, you know, a neutral international body, you know, much less accepted the conclusion that that body gave. Um, you know, and everything we've talked about this in other contexts, you know, I do think what's really dangerous about the maritime deal that Turkey signed with Libya, uh, you know, some people, pro-Ankara people have tried to say, well, you know, you have to think of this as a negotiating position, not Turkey's actual claim. Uh, but that's not the way the Turkish government's presented it. The Turkish government has been putting out these maps of the maritime deal with Libya, saying, you know, this is Turkey's uh, maritime homeland. And it's in that context, you know, even an international legal decision on the East Medi-Easy issue that would be, you know, that objectively to many of us might seem very fair or very even pro uh, the Turkish position would still far, fall so far short of what Turkey's claimed that in this hyper-nationalistic climate that Erdogan's created, it's again just very difficult for me to imagine Turkey ever accepting something like that. Well, and due to all that, how do you see evolving the situation uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean in the next years until Erdogan has his election? I mean, look, I, you know, if then nothing else, the fact that after last summer, Turkey was clearly willing to walk back. Um, its position a little bit and at least stop the kind of active provocations it was engaging in, you know, does show that Erdogan, you know, again, I mean, he is pragmatic. He understands that at a certain point he's antagonized people too much. He's good at stepping back when he reaches that point. 
Um, you know, Turkey has so many other conflicts. It had uh, the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict to worry about. It's facing a potential showdown with Russia and Idlib. Uh, it's, you know, the Kurdish issue continues to, and that, I always feel foolish when I say anything optimistic. It does seem like Erdogan's decided to keep this one on the back burner for at least a little while. But again, you know, as you say, given the electoral concerns he faces, it's always very easy to move it to the front burner. And uh, you see Turkey again, uh, Erdogan and Putin again at odds, you, because this relationship is also a difficult one and one that at some points we don't understand it very well. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the relations between Turkey and Russia? Uh, no. I mean, the, right, at the end of the day, no one understands it very well. Maybe Erdogan and Putin included. Um, and you do, it is ironic, right? At the same time, you see Turkey talking about how it's uh, able to work with Russia in a constructive fashion to solve regional problems to the benefits of both countries, uh, which is clearly not true. You also hear Turkey, you know, in the Washington, especially emphasizing that it's the only country uh, that's standing up to Russia in Libya, in Syria, in the Caucasus, and that if Washington wants to contain Russia, it needs to work with Turkey, which is also not entirely true. Uh, I mean, the relationship is fascinating. It's this kind of competitive collaboration or collaborative competition uh, where, you know, in all these theaters, Turkey and Russia really are, you know, going head to head or their proxies are going head to head. Um, their interests clearly do conflict uh, in very real terms, the interests of the uh, proxies that they're supporting. Uh, and yet at the same time, this relationship seems to have benefits to both of them uh, because, you know, be it Syria, be it Libya, be it uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the result is that when, you know, when Turkish-backed forces and Russian-backed forces square off, it strengthens both Russia and Turkey's control over the relevant actors uh, in the region at the, to the exclusion of the West. Um, you know, and this is something that clearly both countries have been very uh, insistent. They, you know, ideologically, they're committed to lessening Western influence in uh, their neighborhood. And so, you know, I mean, the situation with Armenia and Azerbaijan is a good example. I mean, clearly this did benefit uh, Turkey's client, Azerbaijan, at the expense of, you know, Armenia, which was traditionally Russia's client. Um, at the same time, the result of this was that Russia now has peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenia is now even more beholden to Russia. Uh, and even Azerbaijan, as much as it was grateful to Turkey for this victory, uh, also is, you know, is now dealing with increased Russian influence in the region. Um, and in the long run, this is a dangerous dynamic for Turkey, I'd add, you know, that you know, Turkey does obviously have substantial military assets that's used them very effectively uh, in these theaters. But at the end of the day, if Turkey is left, you know, having alienated its Western allies, uh, facing off with Russia head to head, you know, that's ultimately Russia's the bigger power. And as we saw in Idlib last spring, you know, when Russian ultimately, Russia and Syria ultimately got fed up with Turkish um, support for anti-Assad rebels, they bombed a Turkish convoy, killed 33 Turkish soldiers, and a few days later, a Turkish delegation was in Moscow agreeing to a ceasefire, more or less on Moscow's terms. So, Yeah, so you make us understand um, this, as you described it, fascinating relationship. 
do you believe uh, Mr. Danforth that the West is going to miss Recep Tayyip Erdogan after uh, some years when eventually he will lose power? The West has to deal after that with a new, a reborn Turkey, a more democratic Turkey. Right, and that's really the unsettling prospect that as bad as Erdogan is, many of the ideological forces that he's unleashed are gonna, you know, outlive his time in office. Uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a worrying scenario that uh, many people in Turkey have pessimistically voiced that, you know, if Erdogan ultimately was replaced by a kind of ultra-nationalist coalition uh, in the context of a deepening, you know, a deepening war against the uh, PKK or, you know, a kind of increasingly isolated and impoverished international context, uh, that that, you know, yeah, could ultimately be worse for uh, Turkey, worse for the Turkish people, and worse for the other countries that have to deal with Turkey. I thank you very, very much for this discussion, for this podcast that you agreed to share with us. Thank you so much, Mr. Danforth. Thank you so much for having me on.